Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Muniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. If you are within the sound of my voice and you haven't visited beenawake.com and subscribed with your email address, I need you to follow me today. Not a bad week, if I do say so myself. This episode's coming out on Saturday. You know, sometimes it's just easier to relax on a Thursday and a Friday night after a long week and get ripping, roaring, ready for a great show and record that on Saturday. So that's what I'm doing. We're going to go through the week at binawake.com. We're going to talk about some important things that are coming over the horizon. And uh, most importantly, we're going to engage in better sense making. I just did last night, I did the individualist podcast with Nick Ashley. That should be coming out on Sunday. That would be uh, Sunday, the 2nd of May, for those of you listening at different times. So you can get extra content from me this week. And I should be doing some kind of a bonus episode as well for you premium subscribers, either later today or maybe tomorrow. So that takes care of that off the top. Make sure you're subscribed with the email address. If you guys don't do that, then I don't know that the show is growing. A Twitter follow is nice, but do me a favor. Subscribe with your email address so you're getting the articles that I write every single week. And if you're so inclined, you can level up your reality by subscribing to the Substack and get a 50% off discount forever if you do that between now and the beginning of September. So it's 129 days. I'm going to be talking about it between now and then. And, uh, you know, that's, 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 all the, that's all the housekeeping. Let's get into the articles. We're going to start with the content recommendation from this week, um, which was uh, Dave Smith's appearance on the Joe Rogan Experience. I called it Talk That Liberty Fire because that's kind of something that Dave Smith has been saying. Um, I, you know, and every good libertarian has already listened to this more than likely. Uh, and frankly, some of the bad libertarians, too, have probably listened to this as well. Uh, but I would really recommend checking it out if you haven't. It's a longer, you know, it's Joe Rogan, so it's a three-hour conversation. But if, um, if you want to get an idea for how to talk about ideas well, specifically, you know, some of the... Uh, some of the ideas of liberty, the larger, the larger questions of what we are dealing with in the United States of America at this particular inflection point. Uh, I think Dave Smith is a great spokesperson for that. Um, you know, I've listened to him for a long time and I'd really recommend it. Um, now, here's the funny thing is I had already had this in the slot. I already had this slotted to go out. And of course, the interview blew up. Um, now, it didn't blow up quite for the reasons that you might think, or maybe it would. Mind you, in this episode, they talk about the warfare state. They talk about the problems with the American empire. They talk about all the, a lot of issues facing, uh, you know, America in the 21st century. And what's very interesting, if you want to examine it this way, is how the enemies, the enemy class chooses to cover it. And, and you know, whatever. At this point, I'm just going to come out and say it. Most journalists are the enemy class. In general, if you are a journalist working for a mainstream publication that has basically the same opinions as CNN, as ABC, as NBC, and so on, you are part of the enemy class. 
And you listening to the show should understand that. And you should understand that um, you should understand that when you're viewing articles written by these people, this and the same would go for, you know, your, your standard university professor and your standard and certainly your university, uh, your, sta- uh, your, your standard university. Um, what's the word? Uh, what's the person that doesn't do anything? A bureaucrat. Your standard university bureaucrat should also be treated like an enemy as well, um, because that's what they are. They're more interested in maintaining their own power and control. They're more interested in making sure that they look good for their bosses than they are with any semblance of truth. And of course, yes, you can say that everybody is like that. And of course, we are all self-interested human beings. And I would agree with that entirely. But people who don't admit their biases and who just pretend to be objective journalists are, um, are frankly the worst kinds of people in this country. Specifically, why? Specifically because what they purport to do is give you a better sense of the world. And they do not. They give you a very, uh, they give you a very manicured sense of the world. They give you, effectively, the analogy would be, um, you know, they create a menagerie and pretend it's the wild. That that that's that's what most of these people do, and especially institutions like Vice, in particular, have gotten horrible. Um, you know, Vice used to be some somewhat of an interesting place to go, and. Today, frankly, you go through and you scroll through their headlines and it's just a bunch of crap. I don't find that. I, I don't find much of it interesting at all. But that's the that is the outlet. It's written by a woman named Katie Way. Um, and then there was another dude who like works for Media Matters for America. If you don't know, Media Matters for America is a hit piece organization. What they do is they look for anybody who doesn't toe the leftist line and they put their information out there. And they clip they clip stuff out of context and they make sure that it goes viral. They get millions of dollars to do this every single year as an organization. I'm not specifically talking about the writers, but if you go, it's just basically one hit piece after another. And there's an entire industry of writers who do this. And if I am being honest with you, I do not understand what brings people joy in doing that. I like taking, you know, arguments apart from an intellectual level, right? I make it a point, frankly, probably sometimes to play clips that are too long on this show because I want to make sure that you're getting as much of a context as I could possibly provide for a topic that I'm covering. That's not what these people do. What these people do is look for exactly the part that they can use to spin a narrative to make sure that you don't listen to a particular person. And I wrote about this, by the way. I mean, this was one of the early articles that I wrote at binawake.com. I think the original one was all the way back September 30th of 2020. So that's at the beginning of what I was saying, of, of what I was, um, when I was covering, uh, whatchamacallit, um, <laughs> when I was covering, you know, current events and trying to engage in better sense making for a broader audience. So, you know, that's what I'm that, that's what I'm doing. And let, let's read through the JRE fault line, which is a post from September 30th. This is actually behind the paywall now. So if you want to if you want to access this whole article, do me a favor and subscribe. I'll definitely talk about this more in depth is what I say. And that's what I'm going to kind of do here. But I just want to put the thought in your mind. If you haven't noticed this already, ready, whether he wants it or not, Joe Rogan is the central fault line between the woke and the normal people. And I don't care if you want to change that distinction. That's the one I'm going to use. Normal people and the woke. It is a useful litmus test to see how somebody reacts to mentioning that you listen to one of his immensely popular interviews. Most people will address your comment directly. 
the woke will try to discredit Joe Rogan for two out of his 1500 plus interviews. Regardless of any difference of opinion I have with Rogan, he obviously produces content people want to hear. Him doing his thing has only helped me, and it seems foolish to, con- to consider him something as ridiculous as transphobic, but that is how these people operate. It might seem, it might seem a little uh, convenient for me to say that it's, a, it's an easy litmus test to say whether if somebody likes Joe Rogan, and, and not even like it, it could it, it spans from neutrality to like right anybody who is neutral on joe rogan to who likes joe rogan is a person that you can engage with but in general if you come across somebody who never listens to rogan and who is just going to point out the one or two things that he did bad well then that person is likely not going to be able to have a conversation about ideas is not likely to be anything more than a mouthpiece for propaganda perpetrated by outlets like, oh, I don't know, let's say MSNBC and Vice News. Because they don't bother to look for things for themselves. And hey, that's fine, right? Most people aren't going to look for the answers. That's why I have a show and why you're listening. And there's nothing wrong with that because you have a lot more important things to do in your life than chase down all these articles that I chase down and try to put things together. I just happen to be that kind of guy that wants to put it all together for you. And that's what I do. So it's a litmus test. If you ask people whether they like Joe Rogan or not, it's a very easy way to figure out what, uh, whether people like him or not. So let's read through. Let's just read through this article from vice.com. Um, and we're going to play the clip that's been making the rounds. And we're going to kind of just go through it and talk very simply about what, what, what is supposedly the issue with this. So, uh, Miss Way says, unfortunately, we're part of a culture where things that famous people say have power and influence, even when it's abundantly clear that they have no idea what they're talking about. Okay, so let's that is a comment that you could say. Let's just let's break down this piece little bit by little bit, shall we? Because this is a very good example of just the monotony and the mediocrity that is on display in most of the way people write. And, you know, some of the stuff I engage into. Sometimes it's just sometimes you need connectors to make, you know, an easy case for something. Unfortunately, we're part of a culture where things that famous people say have power and influence, even when it's abundantly clear that they have no idea what they're talking about. I'm referring, of course, to the vaccine skepticism Rogan has voiced multiple times on his extremely successful podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience. So, you know, again, at any point in time, famous people have had power and influence. It's just a question of who those famous people are. Most recently, Rogan and his guest, comedian Dave Smith, took a few minutes on episode released April 23rd to advise young people against getting the COVID-19 vaccine, with Roman with Rogan claiming he'd tell a healthy 21-year-old hell no if one asked him whether or not they needed it. And then she quotes from the thing, so let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead. And, and people and say, do you think it's safe to get vaccinated? I've said, yeah, I think for the most part it's safe to get vaccinated. I do. I do. But if you're like 21 years old and you say to me, should I get vaccinated? I, I go, no. Yeah. Are you healthy? Are you a healthy person? Like, look, don't do anything stupid, but you should take care of yourself. You yeah. should, if you're, if you're a healthy person and you're exercising all the time and you're young and you're eating well, and like, I don't think you need to worry about this. 
Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. But there's a uh, lot of jobs that will tell you you need to have this. Well, that's what's but starting to happen now. People are worried about them doing it for their children. And we talked about this earlier, yeah. there's the, 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 that you might have to have your, your children vaccinated. And, you know, I can tell you as someone who's both, both my children got the, va- the, the virus, it was nothing. I mean, I hate to say that if someone's children died from this. I'm very sorry that that happened. I'm not... I'm not in any way diminishing that, but I'm saying the personal experience that my children had with COVID was nothing. One of the kids had a headache. The other one didn't feel good for a couple of days. Yeah. Like maybe, I mean, not feel good. Like, mm, like no, no big deal. No coughing, right. no, no, no achy, no, like in agony. There was none of that. It was very mild. It was, it was akin to them getting a cold. Yeah, and you can have this thing where it's like you were saying this virtue signaling and this kind of like theatrical display of I get the vaccine, what a good person I am, I care about everyone. But you're like, look, my daughter's a lot younger than your kids, but I'm like, yeah, I'm not injecting my daughter with something to fucking virtue signal. Like, I'm not doing that. If there's something that she's of no risk, statistically has no risk from, I'm sorry, I'm not taking any experiment uh, on her in that. And that's that's my attitude. But it's amazing that that's controversial. Yeah. That even saying that I'm not going to inject my child with the vaccine is controversial. Yeah. It's crazy. Because, again, we are not talking about even the flu that we just found out killed 22,000 people last year. We're not talking about that. Right. We're talking about something that is not statistically dangerous for children. But yet people still want you to get your child vaccinated, which is crazy to me. Like, you should be vaccinated if you are vulnerable. Sounds pretty reasonable to me. But, you know, let's let's give Katie Way uh, the benefit of the doubt. And let's let's go back to the initial point that she made where people who have power and influence can affect the conversation. Right. What what was her exact words? Her exact words were we're part of a culture where things that famous people say have power and influence, even when it's abundantly clear that they have no idea what they're talking about. You know, kind of like you, Katie. So according to her, this footage is flat out depressing because we know that so-called healthy 21-year-olds, even the ones who eat right and exercise, can very much uh, contract COVID-19. Hence, the slew of outbreaks that shut down any college campuses. So this is this links to an article that says student returning to college campuses can't quarantine on campus. Where do they go? Um, that dared to reopen in the summer and fall of 2020. We also know that anecdotal evidence like the detail Rogan presents about his kids' COVID-19 COVID experiences attempts to bolster the incorrect but oft-repeated stat that 99% of people survive COVID-19, but that death is the only thing worth worrying about. So this is a very, this is a very interesting sentence, right? We also know that anecdotal evidence like the details Rogan presents about his kids' COVID-19 experiences attempt to bolster the incorrect but often repeated statistic that 99% of people survive COVID-19. That death is the only thing worth worrying about despite studies underway on COVID-19's potentially devastating long-term effects and that this pandemic has some kind of acceptable death toll. So what Katie has done in this sentence is convinced me, she has convinced me that she should have no say in policy and she should have no say in any of substance worth talking about. Why? Well, because, of course, if you look, if you look at the FDA's numbers, you will see that there is a 99 percent recovery rate from COVID-19. And yes, in fact, when we are talking about a virus, it should be the number one thing we should look at is how many people it is killing. Right. If it was a 50 percent, if it was 50 percent of people dying from something, that's that's a big problem. 
If it's less than 1%, we need to put things in the proper perspective. Now, what she does is, off, is, is quote this often cited studies that are underway on COVID-19's potentially devastating long-term effects, which my understanding at least, and you know, I haven't dived too far, dived too far into this data yet because these studies are still underway. Basically, there are instances that some people who have contracted the virus are having some kinds of reactions that last longer than, uh, than the virus itself. However, can we trust the people reporting on this? I say no. Can I even trust the doctors con con uh, conducting the study? I don't know. But I'm willing to look at the data that they come out with. And what I'll be interested in seeing is if these people who have longer term effects have other lingering health issues beforehand. The point Rogan made, which is completely logical, is that if you are a generally healthy person, there is really no reason for you to get a vaccine, which can we even call it a vaccine if you're supposed to get it five years from now or if you're supposed to get it in 10 months? We've never called the flu shot a vaccine. And this is an honest question. I don't have an answer to it, but it's something that's been rattling its way in my brain lately, which is why do we call the flu shot the flu shot? And why do we call the measles, mumps and uh, meningitis? Maybe chicken pox. Why do we call the chicken pox and polio vaccine? Why do we call those vaccines? Right. Because essentially what those vaccines are supposed to do is make it so that you never contract a disease. Whereas there is no there is only evidence. This is the evidence as cited by the CDC and the FDA and the World Health Organization that the current vaccines on the market for the for the coronavirus um, only reduce the likelihood of contraction and spreading. Now, that's science talk, right? So that's what scientists are always going to say. So that death is the only thing worth worrying about despite studies underway on COVID-19's potentially devastating long-term effects and that this pandemic has some kind of acceptable death toll. Of course it does. Of course it has some kind of acceptable death toll. If you believe the politicians when they say just... If we can save just one life, shut up. You don't get a seat at the table anymore. You can go and play with your toys and you can go and play in whatever fantasy world that you want to live in. But if you're ready to grow up, if you're ready to level up your reality to understand the way it actually is, when you want to look at things at a society level, not at your family level, not at, your, not at the individual level, that we operate in every single day. If you want to understand things at the level of society and above that, there is absolutely an acceptable death toll. If you enter in the military, if you go into the military and you are going to be an officer and you are going to lead men and women into battle, it is said, well, you know, we're not supposed to, you know, you never leave a man behind, right? At the same time, when you are planning a mission, there is absolutely an acceptable death toll. And to imply anything else is to deny reality and to deny the way things are. This woman is a liar. <laughs> this woman doesn't know what she's talking about. And she's more interested in manipulating you to actually perceive the fear that she apparently feels every single day. And I say good. By the way, I want these people to keep living in fear. I don't like the effect that they're having over policy at the moment. But let me tell you something right now. There, is, there are massive social experiments going on right now in the way that people react to trauma and crisis and so on and so forth. And for those of us who aren't afraid to live our lives, for those of us who aren't afraid to go out there and take what we can get, 
by, you know, providing value to people, we are going to succeed far more than the people like Katie Way, because somebody like this is going to be a staff writer at vice.com until vice basically goes out of business. Same thing with this Alex Patterson type, type of dude who works for Media Matters for America. These people have a skill. Writing is a skill. It's one that I cultivate. Right. It's one that I work on. And I would argue you should work on it, too, even if you're not going to produce a newsletter or, you know, do any kind of serious writing. It's still useful because it's a very good way of getting your thoughts out onto paper. And it's a very good way of organizing yourself into some kind of uh, being that's worth listening to, let's say. Let's continue reading. But so she so with that one sentence, we can basically dismiss her. But we're going to read this from an educational standpoint to understand just how poorly this type of person and this type of outlet is, um, is actually serving their audience. More critically, this armchair health advice doesn't affect his own listeners, especially when it comes to a virus that is, as we speak, evolving to become more contagious, thanks in part to lax COVID regulations that create rampant opportunities to infect people. If someone, let's say a man, opts to not get vaccinated because he heard a muscular guy and a libertarian comedian say it's fine on a podcast, that decision isn't just about him. It's also about his family, the people he lives with, and the people he sees on his daily life. A fact that Rogan vaccination thesis does not deal with whatsoever. It wasn't a thesis, Katie. Can, can we just talk about that? It wasn't a thesis. It was them having a conversation. And those of us who listen to the Joe Rogan experience understand that nothing is said in a vacuum. The point of long form isn't to present propaganda like what your outlet does. The point of long form is for people to listen to a really good conversation about important ideas. And anybody, anybody who is a content creator worth listening to is always going to say to check my sources. Check my sources, by the way. You can go and look at the stuff that Katie has in this article. You can tell me that I'm actually wrong, and that's fine. Right. That, that's fine. You can say that I'm wrong about my interpretation of this because I make my biases clear and I don't present myself as the 100 percent authoritative force. What's fascinating, what is fascinating about somebody like Katie in this article is that while she is saying that we shouldn't do armchair uh, journalism or we shouldn't do armchair medical advice and we shouldn't you know, point out the fact that we shouldn't talk about things that are outside of our expertise. She she doesn't quote any experts within this article. She doesn't request, she doesn't even listen to the article. She doesn't even listen to the podcast in question. How do I know? Because in the original piece, they called Dave Smith a Republican who goes out of his way and is in fact considering running for the presidency under the libertarian ticket. He is a radical libertarian anarcho-capitalist. But, you know, under Katie's worldview, that just makes him a Republican. More critically, <sighs> this armchair health advice. But do you see? So this is what a piece like this is meant to do isn't to present information per se. This isn't about you coming to a conclusion. This is about getting your marching orders if you are part of the herd that vice uh, that vice tends to. Right. So you what you can do now is when your family member or your friend talk about Joe Rogan and be like, oh, yeah, but didn't you see what he said about the vaccines? What did he say? What did he say? He said, if somebody came up to me and said, are vaccines healthy? He would say yes. And I say yes, too, by the way. I have said on this show, if you feel that getting the vaccine is best for you, please do so. There's no, there's no reason not to from that perspective. But if a young person came up to me and asked whether they should get it, he would ask them, are you healthy? No then don't worry about it. If you are somebody who takes care of yourself and you are a generally speaking healthy young person, 
the only real reason that you have to get a vaccine is because the government and the major corporations in America are forcing you to do so. Does that make sense? That the only reason why you're getting a vaccine is because the governments and America are, and the governments and the major corporations of America are forcing you to do so. Now, look, and, and in fact, and in fact, everybody admits this, even the people like Katie, even the people like Katie would admit this if you actually got them into a conversation. Because when I've had the conversation with people, most people have just said, yeah, but you know, it's just what it is. It is what it is. This is going to be the cost of doing business. This is just what it takes for, if this is what it takes, I cannot tell you how many times I have heard this. If this is what it takes for things to get back to normal, then I'm going to do it. Here's a reality check. It's not going back to normal. I don't think I'm going to get to, I, we'll see how I feel at the end of this episode after I go through the other pieces. I might save Joe Biden's uh, uh, State of the Union address for next week's show. I might turn it into its own bonus show. I haven't quite decided yet because frankly, there's a lot in there to unpack and I'm debating how much I want to unpack. But if you think that things are going back to some kind of normalcy as we had in 2018, God, you're wrong. The new normal are people who want to achieve and people who are willing to listen and follow. And in some respects, that's the same. That's a tale as old as time. But it will be clearer in American society than it ever has been. That divide will be clearer within American society than it ever has been in our history. So that's the GRE fault line. It's a very, it's a very easy litmus test. And frankly, we are at a point in the society where we need these litmus tests to understand who we can talk to and who we have to stay away from. Because it's not enough. I don't think it's enough to have a reasoned conversation anymore. I don't know how often it is possible. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But I really, I really worry. And, and I worry for some of the things that Joe Biden brought up in his, uh, in his State of the Union address. So, uh, so, you know, check out the interview. It's really, really good. Vice is, Vice is a trash magazine. You shouldn't really pay attention to it unless you want to laugh. And, you know, people who are people who are unwilling to accept that there is always an acceptable death toll for anything are people who you can immediately disregard. They are not worth your time. They are not worth your consideration, and they are certainly not worth listening to. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about why propaganda works, shall we? This is a good this is a good way to this is a good way to uh, to transition from this, because this is also at play within that vice article and a lot of the a lot of the stuff that we read on this show so i'll have to search for the citation within his book um and eventually i'll find it when i finish reading it but michael malice has made many contributions to my thought and the thinking of others in the liberty world a self-styled troll who is also one of the most well-read people on the planet arguably arguably he's one of the most well-read people on the planet he brings an immense amount of knowledge to any discussion he enters in 2014, he published the book, Dear Reader, the unauthorized autobiography of Kim Jong-il. Leading up to this, he not only studied North Korean culture in depth, but also visited the country and read their literature and myths published in English, mind you, to truly grasp the depravity of the regime and the humanity of the people in North Korea. There are many frightening things about living in North Korea we won't get into today. I'd recommend you pick up the book or look for more talks Malice has given on the subject. 
for a far better account than I can give. But let's talk about the in-group. To whittle down the field of sociology, let's recall that for any population of individuals within a society, there are various layers of in-groups and out-groups. Allow me to elucidate. Let's take two extended families, the Smiths and the Darbys. While the Smiths and the Darbys may both belong to the same in-group of Maryville, a given Darby amongst the Smiths would be considered part of an out-group. This gets complicated if they get married, but then a Darby might become a Smith and become part of the in-group of the Smiths. Okay, now let's say the Darbys consist of five brothers, all married with two children. While they are all within the same in-group of the Darbys, each nuclear family would be considered its own in-group, and the cousins, therefore, would be an out-group. To make things more complicated, we could split the men and women, the children and adults, and so on into various in-groups and out-groups. It is very human. Here's the point. It is very human to feel an in-group preference. And the larger a grouping we take, the more difficult it is to clearly discern who aligns with you. One way we signal our preferences is through our clothing and jewelry we wear or don't wear. Even for those of us bullied as children, wanting to feel involved and included is a very powerful, instinctual desire. Outgroup. How does this discussion relate back to the North Korea, to North Korea and the effectiveness of propaganda? Well, for starters, if a human's desire to feel involved and part of an in-group is a primal drive, and it is, we can assume that you don't want to find yourself in an outgroup. Perhaps at a baseball game, it's okay to wear the wrong team's colors, but everyone should know that in certain neighborhoods, one can be insulted for choosing the wrong color to wear. Here's another quick example. If it's Wednesday and I'm not wearing pink, I can't sit with the mean girls. Being excluded sucks. But when governments and big corporations get involved, this gets worse. People in power want to manipulate your perception of the in-group and out-group, and media outlets and others do so every single day. That's what Katie is trying to do with her Vice article. She is saying Joe Rogan is part of the out-group. Joe Rogan is not somebody who you should listen to. I'm somebody you should listen to. Me, Katie Way, whoever that is. Some things are harmless enough. Right. Some some and harmless is a relative term here. Some some creation, some outgroup creations are harmless enough. For example, we might say that murderers, rapists and thieves don't really have a place within civil society. I'd be fine with that, by the way. Propaganda is a method of social control, and the North Koreans are really good at it. In the West, we hear the stories of what the Koreans under Kim Jong Il are led to believe about their now departed leader. One story in particular always stuck with me, which is the first time Kim ever played golf. He scored 18 hole-in-ones. And that's, and, you know, that's the story that you're supposed to believe. But, but that's impossible, you might say. You know, on a par five, it's, if there's a dog leg, how are you going to get a hole-in-one? Well, don't you see, and you will in a minute if you don't already, that that's the point. The point is actually to make something so crazy that you force people to believe. See, if I was a leader, hell-bent on controlling what my subjects believed and thought about me, I wouldn't settle for being an okay golfer. I would want them thinking that everything I say and do makes me essentially a god. It doesn't matter whether the people truly believe this in their hearts, it matters that they comply with my will. This is the sort of devious thinking present in many world leaders, especially within the regime of North Korea. 
if Kim Jong-un today would decree that he is the skinniest person on earth, you as a loyal subject would have to agree with him. Why? Because disagreement means death. Literally. See, the really devious nature of much propaganda is how it simultaneously upholds talking points for the or, and orders to the herd, and it demonstrates those who would think independently clearly to a given regime. Sorry, that wording is a little unclear. Let me restate. So what prop, So there's, there's two effects of propaganda, right? One is giving the marching orders to people. That's, that's the first thing propaganda does, right? That's what the Vice article was doing that we were just reading. It was giving people marching orders. You should not listen to Joe Rogan. And whatever he said is obviously a problem because he is not a specific scientist that we think should be elevated. Never mind the fact that the dude is 50 and looks better than I do. Never mind the fact that he has his own supplement company and has studied things like health and immunity and, 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 and immunology for years. Never mind the fact that he has the most popular interview show in the world and he can talk to whatever expert he wants with the touch of a phone. He literally can bring whoever he wants to him to discuss an issue. But the way that other people think and the way that propagandists think is that unless it comes from the correct source, i.e. Mr. Fauci, then it can't possibly be anything worth listening to. So that's the one thing that propaganda does. Propaganda gives marching orders to people and it tells you what to believe. But then the second part, there's the, then there's the reverse effect. The reverse effect is what does it do for people like us? What does it do for somebody like me who doesn't believe propaganda at face value and wants to actually understand issues at a deeper level? Well, it shows to people in the regime who is willing to think independently and who therefore is a danger. One of the reasons, this is, by the way, one of the reasons why I counseled people to lay low on Facebook and elsewhere online. There is absolutely a double standard present in media consumption and creation, but recognizing and arguing this will immediately put you in the outgroup, and that is not always the best place to be. I, I've made, I was, um, I don't remember if I talked about this on the show, but in the aftermath of the 6th, I, you know, I, I've said the empire is coming home. They are turning Donald Trump into a scapegoat of white supremacy, and they're going to start with the people associated with him, and then they're going to branch out from there. And, and basically anybody who disagrees with the Democratic talking points will be labeled a white supremacist in one form or another. And how far we go is still is still gray to me. I don't know. But certainly... You will witness it in your personal relationships before we ever see some sort of camps uh, um, in America for these people to go to. And, and again, we're going to it's this is this, this is the empire coming home. That's what has been happening to people in the Middle East for the last 20 years will now start happening to people in America. And perhaps in some respects, it's you know, it's it's eating your own medicine. But we didn't I didn't I never chose to invade Afghanistan. I shouldn't have to deal with those consequences, but you know, I won't. There is a double standard and you need to be aware of it and you need to be careful of how you talk on social media and you need to be careful of how you talk to other people in your life. Now, what I'm not telling you to do is lie and join the herd. In fact, I think you should find your own herd, right? You need to reach out and you need to find people who think similarly to you who want to succeed, who want to be great, and make sure that you talk with them. 
What I'm pointing out is that sometimes what the dangerous people are looking for is the wrong reaction to a crazy story. And depending on the company that you are in, it may be beneficial to play along. Now, if I haven't gotten myself in enough trouble already, let's talk about the true origins of conspiracy theories. One thing I do on the pages of beenawake.com is uh, you is demonstrate the way words are used to manipulate your thoughts. The world is far too complex for us to describe everything that happens. Even the senses we rely on don't always give us a clear picture. Does anybody else wear eyeglasses? Because I do, and I'm miserable without them. One thing that any institution gain, that gains enough power will attempt to do is control the narrative. Governments engage in this action by controlling the flow of information, as well as the educational institutions within the society that they rule. More specifically, certain agencies within a larger government will often be the ones generating the correct opinions. In the aftermath of the Warren Commission, which was charged with giving the official account of how JFK was assassinated, the Central Intelligence Agency issued a cable in 1967. You can find the original document here, and I made sure to reproduce it in its entirety below I think it's worth pursuing or perusing. Now, I have no particular interest in the specifics of the Warren report. What emerges as you read below are words of a playbook for how to dealing with how to, you know, construct narratives and deploy them within societies that go against and how to combat narratives that go against the accepted opinion. The term conspiracy theorist has gained such prominence, many will claim the identity for themselves. In practice, though, this term is deployed to inhibit thought. And by the way, this is even for the people who are like, oh, I'm something of a conspiracy theorist, man, right? You're still inhibiting thought because you're putting things within that construct. You're putting what you're talking about within the construct of conspiracy theories. And if we're talking about conspiracy theories, I don't really deal in them, so I'm not particularly interested in it. In the first section, the writer of the cable details the speculation around the Warren report that the speculation around the Warren report can ruin the perception of government both internally and externally. This section further details that two specific claims that they don't want to be considered are that Lyndon B. Johnson planned the assassination or that the CIA did not or that the CIA employed Oswald. It is in this third section that we start to see the action elements. Thinking on the cable or taking on the cable, they argue you shouldn't bring up conspiracies, but if they are being discussed, individuals with influence should be deployed to combat the bad information. This is a great tie-in to the Vice article I was reading before, because Katie Way is lamenting the fact that people who have power and influence, you know, people listen to. And it's like, well, and here's the CIA in 1967 saying that in order to combat this, what we need to do is find people with power and influence and make sure that they have the opinion that we want. We might consider the influencer of phenomenon today if we're talking about influence, but that's really not what I'm discussing because the same methods of distribution exist today. And most thought that's put out by an influencer or a celebrity are really the consequences of other institutions of sense making. The better institutions to consider then are how press outlets and social media platforms could be reached and influenced by high-level government officials to control and maintain a narrative. While the truth about Russiagate was apparent and obvious to careful readers, many in the broader population will still believe 
that the Russian government somehow hacked the election to give Donald to give it to Donald Trump or that Trump was some kind of Russian agent. In fact, Joe Biden repeated this lie in his State of the Union address. It comes from using people of influence to push narratives that ideas like Russian collusion or WD, WMDs in Iraq come to be. Moreover, at the institutional level, people who would question the narrative are immediately cast as actors operating in bad faith, conspiracy theorists. This cable gives a formula that is still deployed to this day. Here's how the cable says to combat critics. One, say that they are wedded to theories adopted before the evidence was in. Two, politically interested. Three, financially interested. Four, hasty and inaccurate in their research. Or five, infatuated with their own theories. Funny how that actually ties back to the article from Vice we were reading, isn't it? This is one of the reasons why I argue a word like truth is so fraught. In a very real way, the truth of a narrative isn't as important to centers of power as it is that people agree with the correct narrative. Let me read that again. The truth of a narrative is not as important to centers of power as it is that people agree with the correct narrative. While this may cause Plato to roll in his grave, perception can dictate reality. The nature of humanity is such that we would rather follow a certain lie than an uncertain truth. Put another way, we crave certainty as a species. It doesn't matter whether Helios pulls his chariot across the sky, and this is the reason for the sun, or whether the earth is caught within the sun's gravity. Culture is built upon a shared narrative, and that narrative is malleable by definition. Usually, when I attempt to present such an idea to a fresh audience, I am met with necessary aversion. After all, they have been given the narrative for most of their life that a fact is a fact and an opinion is an opinion. Given, though, that reality is mediated through the individual and there is variation between individuals at the very basic and biological levels, facts and opinion actually vary. Now, the efforts of good science, history, and philosophy, etc., can be said as an effort to create the best narrative that the most people can follow and understand. One time I asked a physicist what the philosophical implications of his work were. He responded by saying that they focus on their work and leave the philosophy to others. There is likely something akin to an objective reality, but to the extent that we will ever truly know it is another matter entirely. And that's all I'm, that's, that is what I mean when I talk about skepticism. It's not that the real world doesn't exist. It's just a question of how can we know it and making sure that we have the best explanations for it or at least the best explanations at the time that we live in. Given that the most basic elements of the cosmos are still being explored, why don't institutions like governments or the CIA allow for this sort of questioning effect? Again, the average person craves certainty. This is the answer. This is why narrative is such a powerful force and why, as a careful reader, which you become by subscribing to this newsletter, by the way, you should look for the way entities are attempting to influence you with a narrative. Where the rubber meets the road for many narratives and the corresponding meta-narratives, which you didn't really get into in this piece, we tell ourselves in the modern day is the arena of politics. The politics is really, unfortunately, where the rubber meets the road in terms of the narrative that you tell yourself contrasted with the narrative the people in power want you to believe. Frankly. I'm still figuring out how to do so myself. I am still trying to figure out how to point out a narrative isn't is powerful, isn't enough that 
I'm trying to figure out how to combat bad narratives and just pointing out the fact that a narrative is bad isn't enough, right? Because you're not giving somebody something to, uh, to change to. But I know how I've been able to combat the bad ideas like the specter of Marx, socialism, or the woke by applying skepticism and a methodological individualism and searching for the patterns of human behavior that exist across ideologies. I got one more piece. This, um, so you might have read this. I, I, I was debating just kind of reading through it and then giving, and then kind of giving the twist. But I think I'll start off with the twist, which is this is, this is actually, um, this is an att my attempt at, uh, at, at satire. So if you read this piece, as you know, on a Monday morning, you're like, whoa, where did LB get this? It's, it's, it was satire. Trust me. So the headline is, make it easy for the police, the only true solution. If you weren't paying attention last week, you probably missed the news that Derek Chauvin was found guilty on all counts in the killing of George Floyd. The, the summer of 2020 saw mostly peaceful protests that demonstrated a severe lack of understanding on the part of many Americans to fully grasp the complexity of what it means to be a police officer. Allow me to educate them in the only way I know how. We in the thin blue line have a very difficult job. It's up to you to make it easier on us. Before police officers donned the color blue and patrolled the streets, the only way for people to find justice was by catching criminals in the act. Only people wearing red could come to their defense. Military officers don't understand the complexities of policing. And while we import many trained military fighters with post-traumatic stress into the police forces, policing itself relies on a very different set of skills. This being said, in the 21st century, the thin blue line is not enough. We must incorporate the larger population into our efforts to serve and protect. We are the only civilizing force in society. We, the thin blue line, our government granted badges and firearms make us the one true force for keeping the peace. Anyone who would stand against us, therefore, are the agents of chaos looking to destroy civilization. It is time for the thin blue line to take its rightful place as the one civilized force within America. Given that we are the only things keeping you safe, you would do best to listen to three simple policy prescriptions to make the world and yourself a safer place. Number one, stay home. Everybody knows that most crime happens outside of the home. In fact, our brothers to the north in Canada have passed rules that make it easier for us in the thin blue line to do what we are supposed to do namely keep you safe. We learned a lot in 2020 about what to do in the face of overwhelming danger. We have noticed that when we in the thin blue line have noticed that when people do not leave their homes, fewer crimes happen. When people aren't out interacting with others, there's a smaller chance they can get into a fight, have their wallet stolen or be assaulted and other horrible crimes that can happen to you when you choose to leave your house. While some crime does occur inside of the house, this is really a you problem. You understand how important it is for the thin blue line to keep you safe. And yet, if you live with somebody who's dangerous, we can't help you by telling you to stay at home, which is obviously the best policy prescription for keeping you safe. The obvious solution for this is for people to live by themselves as often as possible. This way, you may always remain home safely. Number two. Wear the right colors. The thin blue line exists to make your life better. It is written on our cars to serve and protect the people in our jurisdiction. Every single police officer wants to make this happen. 
But if I'm being honest, you people in the general population make this pretty tough. It's understandable that you think your clothing should be used to express some kind of individual identity. But do you see us doing that inside of the thin blue line? No. Of course not. What we have realized is that you don't understand, or what we have realized, excuse me, I don't mean to get ahead of myself, we in the thin blue line have realized something that you don't understand, is that when, when we wear the same colors, we know who is on the right side of things. Given this truth, I think it would be better for everyone if they leave the color blue to us within the thin blue line. This leaves many other colors for you to wear, but in reality, this still does not solve the problem. When we put bad guys in prison we make them wear a color like orange now i don't want to come off across as unreasonable or anything orange is kind of a jarring color instead i will be reasonable and propose the following good people should wear white going forward and bad people should wear black if you're planning to leave your house which you shouldn't really do see rule one and really think hard about that just consider that wearing the right color like white will lessen the likelihood that you will be identified as a bad guy the bad guys will wear black because they need to so we can take them out. I mean by arresting them, of course. Just imagine a world where there is only black, white, blue, and orange. Don't you see how this fixes all the supposed problems with policing overnight? If you tell me you're not a criminal, I won't have to bother you by wearing white and you can do this. If you are a criminal, I will know immediately because you are wearing black. It, so wear the right colors and this will save society. like what you heard today, go to inawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is LB Muniz, and I am not one with the woke.